You're listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told at the Northern Light United Church on January 8, 2019. The theme was Time and Tide. Co-hosts for the evening were David Noon and Tom Cosgrove. Live music was performed by Juno Gales. Without any, any further noodling, I think we'll bring up our, our first speaker sitting in the, the Iron Throne over here to my right, uh, Alicia Hughes-Scandies, uh, who first learned uh, to, uh, let's see, the, it's good to have notes, even though Alicia is one of my best friends. Uh, she first learned to swim at the North Charleston Community Center in West Virginia. She learned first to clear a snorkel in the Atlantic Ocean at the age of eight. Uh, and she moved to Alaska, to Juneau, 14 years ago. So please welcome Alicia Hughes-Scandies. Hi. My dad had a dream that I drowned when I was little. And he was not the kind of guy who got easily freaked out by his dreams. So this one really spooked him because he told me about it so we could both, you know, make sure it didn't happen. And my whole family loved being around the water. Growing up, our family vacation spot was in the Florida Keys. Uh, at least once a year, we would go down there for a week, and we'd swim, and we'd snorkel, and uh, I looked forward to it the rest of the year. I was in the water wings when I was little, and then the swimming lessons. So uh, I really loved being in the water. But I was the youngest in my family, so I was the shortest, and perhaps, you know, the least experienced. So I was outside my comfort zone in the ocean pretty early. Uh, I remember the first time that we rented a boat and went snorkeling off of the boat instead of the beach. The chop, it swamped my snorkel many times. I swallowed a lot of seawater. I ended back on the boat crying <laughs> in a towel watching the rest of them. So when I was 10, my grandmother was dying, and my grandmother lived in Jacksonville, Florida. And we loved going to Jacksonville because at the Jacksonville Beach, there were real waves. In uh, the Florida Keys, the water is shallow and calm. So anytime we could play in the surf, we were really excited. And with a quiet house full of stressed out adults who are grieving, anytime my dad could take my brother and I to the beach, he would go for it. So my dad had taken my brother Corin and I to the beach on this day. It was gray and overcast, choppy water. Uh, lifeguard was on duty, couple of beachcombers. That was it, should have been a clue. Um, and Corin and I, as soon as we got in the sand, you know, we took off for the water. Um, my dad set out a lawn chair, uh, got on the beach with his newspaper. That was his stress relief. And Corin and I were mixing it up in the water. We're playing games that, you know, kids that age do. We're splashing each other, trying to dunk each other. 
uh, trying to convince the other person that there's a shark right behind you. I'm not kidding. And we're having a grand old time. And uh, we're a little bit deeper in the water than I wanted to be because Corin was taller and a little bit braver. And I found that if I kind of submerged myself, put my head up and stretched out my toes, I could just feel the sandy bottom, which was reassuring. And all of a sudden, the waves kind of changed. I started getting slapped around in the face by them, and it was starting to come over my head. So I did the thing where I stretched out my foot to feel for the bottom, just to reassure myself. And I couldn't feel the bottom. And not only that, I could tell I was nowhere near the bottom. It was way over my head. It was cold, rough water down there. I looked over my shoulder back at the beach, and the lifeguard tower was a lot shorter and dad seemed a lot further away. I look back at Corin, and I see he's also getting beat up by the waves. And my brother and I have always been close, so we looked at each other. We didn't really have to have a chat about this. We knew we both wanted to get in, and quickly. So we turned toward shore, but we had also been raised really strictly with the buddy system, so you can't leave the person you're swimming with. So. We, as we turned and we're trying to make progress, we're kicking as hard as we can, we're swimming. Every couple of strokes, I got to stop and see if Corin's coming or if he's doing okay in the water. So I'm not making it very far. Similarly, I see Corin start to make progress, look for me, he gets sucked right back to where I am. So we do this a couple of times, getting knocked around by the waves. My heart is starting to pound. I'm swallowing seawater, I'm getting really panicky. Another wave comes over my head, and when I come up from the water, I hear Corin shouting, help, to the lifeguard. And my heart sank, because this was so serious. We never called for help, and now I know it's not just me being a scared baby. Corin is every bit as afraid as I am in that moment. So after my heart sinks, then I feel the relief of, yeah, that's what lifeguards are for. <laughs> We've got one right there on the beach. My dad's a good swimmer. The adults are going to come in and save the day. So I turn, and I start shouting, help, help. We're waving frantically. Uh, and it took no time at all to discover they can't hear us. Lifeguards still holding the lifeguard thing, <laughs> looking out, scanning the beach. Dad's still there with the paper sitting on the lawn chair. So Corin and I now know if we're getting out of this, it's on our own power. So we have a little pep talk, and he says, just keep swimming. But this was pre-Finding Nemo, so it was stressful. Just keep swimming. It's not a happy, just keep swimming. So we turn, and what basically we had given each other permission to do was to stop looking to see if the other one was coming. So we turn, and we're kicking, and we're swimming as hard as we can. My heart's pounding, and it seems like the waves are maybe letting up a little bit. So I risk looking up, and I see that Corin is right there with me. He's stopped as well. We're about to where we had been playing before. He puts his feet down. We turn, we make eye contact. We start laughing hysterically because we're so relieved. And as we start laughing, crash, wave behind us, sucks us right back out instantly to where we were or further. And at that point, I was just thinking, this is how I die. We're so stupid 
that we didn't keep going in. But I'm really just so sad, and it's the first time in my life that I've thought, God, this is so short. That's not how I wanted to die. And I can tell Corin's thinking similar thoughts because he screams, don't stop till we get to shore, and just takes off. So I follow him, and I'm kicking, and I'm, you know, my heart's racing, and I want to cry, but I'm just head down, kicking as hard as I can. I don't even notice if the waves change at this point. I don't notice the water shifting. I think I hear someone screaming, and I hear someone say, stand up, stand up, and I look, and the water is to Corin's knees. <laughs> we're, we're back in, <laughs> but I don't stop swimming until I crawl onto the beach. Thank you. All right, second on our list tonight is Joanne Bloom. An index card tacked to the bulletin board at UW advertised a fisheries research summer job in Kadishan Bay, southeast Alaska. Although they couldn't find it on a map, Art got the job and his young wife, Joanne, went with him. Two days after getting off the ferry, their float plane splashed down halfway between Juneau and Sitka. They packed in research equipment, three months' worth of canned goods, and two rifles for bear protection. That was in 1972. They came just for the summer. Joanne is still here, of course, but not for the fish, but for her five Alaskan grandkids. Please welcome Joanne Bloom. So I clipped the letter with a clothespin tied the clothespin to a string, tied the other end of the string to a long stick, and leaned that stick over the bank of the Kadishan River where it was narrow. I knew the guys at the fishing game cabin upriver would be floating down anytime soon, and they'd know to take that letter and bring it across the inlet to Tenneke Springs where they had a post office. A week later, my dad in Springfield, Massachusetts, was reading that letter. It told about my wonderful Alaskan summer adventure. It told about the eagle nest in the trees nearby, the bears out in the meadow in front, and the fish in the stream right beyond the meadow. And my dad loved to fish. He puts the letter down and says, Molly, I'm going to Alaska. You want to come? And she said, Harry, that's OK. I'll stay here and watch the store. But I bet Brad would like to go. He's on college break. And sure enough, Brad jumped at the opportunity, my younger brother. And my dad did the right thing. He called the United States Forest Service in Juneau, Alaska, and asked if it would be OK if he went to visit his daughter. And they said, well, yeah, I guess. And so he said, well, what could I bring? And they said, oh, they would really like anything fresh, fresh fruits and vegetables. That'll go over really well. So my dad goes to the nearby stop and shop and loads up a plaid blue, red, green canvas suitcase with tomatoes and lettuce, cucumbers, apples, oranges, cherries, grapes, pears, peaches, whatever he could find. And off they go to Hartford, Connecticut and get their first flight. 
think they changed in Chicago, changed planes in Seattle, Ketchikan, <laughs> Sitka, Juneau. They find themselves downtown on South Franklin Street and find a room in the Alaska Hotel above the bar, and they're ready to fly out the next day. But for some reason, the planes aren't flying the next day. And they spend another day in Juneau and another night above the Alaska bar. And then the next day, their float plane uh, pilot takes them out and they get over Katashan Bay. He finds Katashan Bay okay, but he can't find any water to land in. So the best thing he can do is take them across the inlet and splash down at the float plane dock in Tenneke. Well, off goes my dad, off goes my brother, and he hands down that plaid canvas suitcase, and there they are, the pilot takes off. Well, luckily, Joseph, a really nice resident of Tenneke, spots them from the path up above and looks at these two guys with sports jackets and slacks, leather shoes, and he comes down the steep ramp and he says to them, are you looking for somebody? And dad says, yeah, my daughter, she's over in Kadishan. And Joseph just shakes his head, goes back up the steep ramp, down to the boat harbor, gets his skiff, brings it to the float plane docks, and loads in my brother and my dad and the canvas plaid suitcase. And he takes them a couple miles across the inlet, and it really is low tide, so there's like a mile wide mud flats there. There's just no place to go. So he does the only thing he can do and takes them off to the side where there's kind of grassy area. And he dumps them out and passes them the suitcase. But he says, if I were you, I wouldn't take that suitcase. You've got a good mile or two to get to where they must be. And there's that little path. See, the bears made that. Just follow that. <laughs> You'll get there. So off they went. I was outside our storage shed that we had converted with, with the bunk beds, and it was kind of our research lab that we worked in and lived in. And I was outside that. I was stoking up the smoker. We had one of those big burn barrel smokers. And I see out in the distance there's some movement. And I instinctively grab the rifle <laughs> and um, keep my eye and squint and look. And it doesn't look like bears. And it gets closer, and it's looking like people, but nobody ever walks into Kadeshian Bay, especially not on a low tide. But it's people wearing sport jackets. And then it's starting to look like my dad and my brother. And I'm going, this, this just can't be. I'm hallucinating. This, is this cabin fever? So I just turn my back, because I just don't know what's going on. And, uh, but sure enough, they come up, greetings all around, hugs, and they're here for the weekend, just want to get a little fishing in. And about then, Art comes out of the woods, and he is just as shocked as I was to see his father-in-law and brother-in-law here in Kadeshan Bay. And he says to them, you came and you didn't bring anything? And they said, oh yeah, well, we left the suitcase out there where the nice man left us off. Oh, yeah? What's in it? Well, fresh fruits and vegetables for you guys. Oh, well, Art got in our flat-bottom boat right away, and he pulled out there just as that tide was coming in and lapping at that 
canvas suitcase and he brings it back and we put it out on the stump in front of the shed there and we unzip it waiting to look inside and yuck <laughs> it was gray and purple and chunky and sloshy and fizzy and fermenty it was unfit for human consumption we left it outside and the next morning we found out it wasn't unfit for grizzly consumption it was just about all gone. And we knew that out there someplace was a bear with a very big East Coast bellyache, if not a great big East Coast hangover. <laughs> Our next speaker is MJ Grande. Uh, MJ came to Juneau for the summer but decided to stay a little longer so she'd have good stories to tell the grandkids. And her story is for them. I grew up in Southern California, and we went to the beach all the time. So I knew about tides. I knew about it going out and building sand castles and then coming back in and crushing them all away. I knew about laying down on the beach towel and having the tide wake you up and getting you all wet. I came to Alaska on a boat and learned a little bit more about tides as we'd come into each port. And the getting out of the harbor and up to the town, depending on the tide, would be a bit more or less of a hike. Spent the summer in Juneau finding out that wild was at the end of perseverance and and just loving it here and thought, I think I want to stay. I think there's going to be good stories. I'd met some friends, and there was Alaska Discovery was in town, and every fall they would donate an exploration trip to SEAC. They'd collect money, and SEAC would be the beneficiary, and people could just go out on a trip with them. No real skills required. So it was September. Season was officially over. Got rigged up, heard, you know, I'd been here for a summer, so I knew about rain and went out to Salvation Army in Western Auto and got appropriate rain gear for the adventure, and we got on the ferry. So there were, I don't even remember how many of us are, were there, but a number of us are here tonight. The ferry went to Angoon, we picked up some more stuff because there'd been gear left there. We went down to Sitka, got on the float plane, and were flown into some bay somewhere. Ken, owner of Alaska Discovery, good man everybody here knows, said, yeah, this looks like a good spot. I think this is high enough tide. Let's set up camp here. We had a delicious dinner, set up all the tents, crawled in for the night. It gets dark in September, so we all went to bed, and at some point started hearing this sound. What was that? And put your hand down and went, there's a particular feel to the water under your sleeping bag. There's a little bit of give before you get to the resistance. So everybody's out of the tents. Pick them up, haul them in. Look, just, oh, just inside the tree line. Look, there's a clear space. This will be a good place to spend the night. We set up the tents. Everybody crawls in. It gets quiet again, but not that quiet. It was a very, very busy night. Woke up the next morning, and that clear space just inside the tree line was a 
bear trail. It was actually an intersection of a number of bear trails. And it had been a busy night on those bear trails. Took a little walk a little further down one of those trails and there was a dead bear. Not a very long dead bear. There was still meat on the bear. So, you know, it's like, I really like these people. My trust level was a little shaky. <laughs> but we get in the kayaks and we start paddling. We paddled and paddled for days. Some days it rained, some days it was sunny. When you woke up every morning, there was a great fire. When you got off of the water in the evening, there was a great fire. I give great thanks to Captain Pyro who was there all the time poking at that fire and making it hot. One day we went up this one waterway and it was a beautiful day. It had been drizzly, so it was really nice to be out in the sun. And the weather was clear, the water was calm, we were paddling, paddling. There was a really nice little bit of wind assist. And so we kept going, and oh, let's just get a little bit farther. There will be a really good place for a picnic. So we went a little bit farther a little bit farther, a little bit farther, and had our food, and then turned around. And that little bit of wind was full on in our face. And that really nice little tidal assist had turned. So we were paddling. And September, it starts to get dark in September. And we're paddling, and paddling, and paddling, and paddling. I had my friend Pam, we were kayak companions, and so as being MJ, she became PJ. We had AJ and BJ also along on this trip. It was a good sisterly sort of an experience. And um, Pam has a beautiful voice, and so we would sing as we go, because that you can really put your arms into it when you get some really good songs going. We did make it out, slept well, warmed up by the fire. Ten days this trip was. We'd watched Mare's Tales in the skies each night, going, the weather's going to change. But it didn't change horribly. We had some wet days, but not too, too many. It was the last day we were coming to the place where we were going to get our pickup of the float planes coming in. It had gotten a little wet, so we put everything out, dried it up, rolled it all up, ready to go. We'd been traveling in clever kayaks, so... Each boat had three bags, and we were getting ready to go. The tide was high, but not as high as it was going to get. We were all packed up. We were relaxed. The experience was done. Took a little nap on the beach. Oh, no, what's that? I sit up. My sleeping bag is floating away on the tide. My backpack with the camera that I was finally going to learn how to become a photographer was in the water. So quick run in, get wet again, haul everything out. We're waiting for the float planes. The first float plane came in, loaded it up. Those people go out. Wait some time. The tide had been coming in, and the experience when the sleeping bag went floating away, well, as it happens, the tide turns. And so the tide started going out. The second float plane returned for the second group, loaded it up, they take off. There were a few more of us remaining for that last and third ride. And we waited. And the tide continued to go out. And we waited. And the float plane arrived. We started loading that plane, and we realized that maybe that load had not really been adequately distributed into three equal groupings. This third trip had more. 
and its share of stuff and weight. Still had the four people and the stuff. The tide is going out. Quick, 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 load it up, shove it up, everything on the laps, everybody in. The float plane goes, this guy's getting nervouser, more and more nervous. The tide's still, he's like, okay, we're gonna give this a go. And he goes down to one end. The plane's really, really revving up. He's like, I don't know, I don't know. No, he didn't, so turn around, motor back down. We're gonna do it, okay. Everybody's thinking, light as a feather, light as a feather, light as a feather, light as a feather. And all the engine gets going. We're going. We're running out of water. Talk about his heart thumping, heart thumping. We lift off, but we didn't lift off very high. We lift off just high enough to get over the trees. And we circled. And then we circled again. And then we circled again. And then we circled again. And finally, we got enough elevation where we were adequate to just make it over whatever mountain that was, to come on home to Juno. I've since learned, always put your body between your stuff and the water and read your tide tables yourself. Thank you. All right, we're going to have one more before we take a break. We're going to invite up Steve Suing. Steve is in his 20th year of loving and living Southeast Alaska. He was born and raised in Idaho and Washington and journeyed to Alaska within a month after graduating from Western Washington University. Steve has been actively engaged in the Juno community since moving from Skagway in 2008 and is a past member of the storyboard here. He feels fortunate every day to be living in Alaska's capital with his partner, sons, and parents who also called Juno home. So please welcome Mr. Steve Suing. Camping via helicopter. It's one thing that I never considered was even possible until I journeyed to Alaska. Into my second summer, I landed a job with the helicopter company in Skagway. And immediately my mind was blown away by the opportunities I was going to have while getting paid and unpaid that were gonna be available to me by working for this helicopter company. Within the first uh, couple weeks, because of staffing levels, I ended up on the glacier, giving tours to visitors, spending hours upon hours on these amazing blocks of ice in the rain, and uh, just really getting to experience Alaska fully and immersed into this nature and this experience that I didn't even know was possible even two years before that. In 2004, uh, in August, middle of August, my friend, who was the lead pilot at the company, said, hey, we gotta take an aircraft down to Juneau. Uh, how would you and your girlfriend like to go with me and my girlfriend? It's kind of a double date. Now, I didn't have a lot of good feelings about Juneau, um, because I don't know if you know this or not, but the Upper Lynn Canal does talk a lot of crap about Juneau. <laughs> I just hate it when they run out of hot dogs at Costco. <laughs> Whatever it is. So I didn't have fond feelings about Juno, but if you've worked in the visitor industry, you know by the time August rolls around, you are over it. And if you live with your coworkers, you're really over it. So getting out of town on a double date via helicopter sounded pretty cool. 
Uh, so yeah, we were in. So we had about a day's warning. Uh, we loaded up the helicopter. It was one of those quintessential nights. Yes, my pilot was smart enough to check the weather, um, but it was clear. Uh, there was barely a breath of wind. This is Skagway at about 5.36. Um, the evening light is starting, so we journeyed out of Skagway. Probably took a circle around the Eldridge Rock Lighthouse because you never get to do that because you just don't have time. We took an aerial tour of Burners Bay, then we turned to the north, headed up towards Kensington to find a place where we were going to camp for the night. Now, three of us in the helicopter were thinking about two flat spots for the tent. Um, my friend, who had already spent probably at least 100 hours with in the helicopter, I trusted him with my life. He was thinking about a safe place to park the helicopter for a night. So we landed on uh, the west side of the Lynn Canal and uh, set up our tents. My girlfriend and I at the time, we were just south of the helicopter, they were a little bit north. Get out our camping chairs, start up our fire, and get ready to watch the amazing sunset over the Chilkat Mountains. And I don't care how many times you've ever seen it, it's always amazing. And it was that time of year where the dark was coming on, the season was ending, we were away from our coworkers and roommates, we were living large. The thing that we were really excited about is because it was getting dark was the possibility of seeing the northern lights. And being in the dark in the Lynn Canal, no light pollution, it was the possibility of being awesome. Uh, so we have our campfire, we have our meal, couple adult beverages, and as that last daylight faded, my friend the pilot said, boy, this beats the hell out of being in a hotel room in Juneau. And we said, yeah, yeah, we, we didn't need Juneau, this is perfect. So we waited for the Northern Lights, uh, they didn't arrive. So we retired to our tents, and I don't know how long it was, uh, I probably had more adult beverages than anyone else, so I probably fell asleep pretty quickly. And um, I remember waking up to this humming sound, and it's like the camp wake up, it's like one eye open, two eyes open, did I really hear, nah, I didn't hear that. A little bit a little longer, I hear this humming sound, and it's a little bit louder, and I'm like, one eye open, two eye open, it's not voices, humming sound, it's a little bit louder, it sounds closer. So I unzipped the door of the tent and I looked out and it was a cruise ship and it was just kind of slowly floating by and all of a sudden there's this amazing sea of lights just right across from us. So I'm like, okay, good, that was pretty, back to bed. The third time I wake up, the, the screen is still open, I look out and there's two legs out in front of the tent and I hear my friend say, who wants to go for a helicopter ride? Now my friend is a notorious prankster, and if there's any kind of shenanigans that were going on, he was probably involved. So I think he's just trying to get me out of the tent, so whatever, I'm gonna act like I'm asleep. Not long after, uh, the two legs don't move, and I hear, who wants to go for a helicopter ride? A Little bit more urgency, so at this point I'm thinking he wants to get me out of the tent. I end up the tent door, I look at him, and immediately when I see his face with my headlamp, I know that this is not a joke. He explains to me that the tide has come in, it's gonna hit the bottom of the helicopter soon, and we need to get out of the tent and into the helicopter. Quickly, I wake up my girlfriend, she's as confused as I am, and he had done the calculations that we didn't have enough time to really break camp. We could grab our sleeping bags, we could grab our backpacks and jump into the helicopter because we needed to get off the beach because the tide was gonna come in and salt water and helicopters is usually not a good thing. So we quickly loaded in the helicopter, all the stuff, Fortunately, we had the foresight because of the downwash of the helicopter that the tents were gonna probably blow up. 
that, that we moved the temps far enough up the beach, we put heavy rocks in them, jumped in the helicopter, and took off. We started heading south to Juneau, and it's pitch black. And we follow the shoreline into Burner's Bay. We find a grassy spot. We set down. He gets out. He says, I, I don't know. I just don't feel like it's going to meet the high tide mark. So he makes the decision, we've got to fly to Juneau. We started heading south. It's pitch black. No one's talking. Within a couple moments, he says, you know, if I don't start seeing some light and get some definition here, we're going to have to turn north because I didn't notice there are some faint northern lights and I at least have some definition in the mountains there. I don't know if it was minutes, but I think it was probably within seconds of him deciding to turn around. We started to see some lights of Juno and started seeing enough glow that we could see the outlines of the mountains. We land in Juno that now morning, probably 3.30 or so, and a pretty confused employee at the helicopter company kind of peeked his head out kind of shook it and then peeked it back in. We didn't exchange a lot of words with him. We pretty much got in a van and checked into a hotel room in Juneau. <laughs> no one really said it, but I think we were pretty grateful for that hotel room in Juneau. We decided to make lemons out of lemonade and stayed an additional night. Got in another aircraft, headed up a day later. <clears throat> Thank you to the people that did not call the authorities about the two abandoned tents, because they were still there when we returned. And then on the office chair of my friend's office there in Skagway, of course, was a tide book waiting for him when we arrived. <laughs> so a couple of things I know in the 14 years since that time has passed is that camping on the Lynn Canal is much better than a hotel room in Juneau. And if it doesn't end in a late night helicopter ride, it's even better. You're listening to Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO Juno at 104.3 FM. These Time and Tide stories were recorded on January 8, 2019. To see if you have a story you'd like to share, look up the dates and themes of our upcoming shows on Facebook or at mudrooms.org. Our next storyteller is named David Job. Uh, David is, uh, he, he brought his fan base. Uh, David is grateful uh, for the rain in Juneau. He expresses great gratitude for that because it keeps the town small. David really likes Juneau. Hey. I love Juno. And December 14th, three weeks ago, is when this began. It was a sunny day with fresh snow on the ground after a long period of rain. It was a good day to go skate skiing. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with skate skiing, it's a type of skiing that's best done on a groomed trail usually out at the campground or in other places. And then it just, it's just got its own style of skiing and it can be done on flat ground. 
with this fresh snow, it's the first time you could do it. So, went out to the campground, and it was ready to go skate skiing, but the campground had not been groomed as of yet. But there was a friend of mine, he said, yeah, it's good, good for skate skiing. He had just come off, I'm like, great, okay. So I went and I started skate skiing. And it was good, it was a good day, it was good, good skate skiing. I went about three quarters of a mile, it was about seven minutes in. Then I got to this place where there's a bridge, you could look over and you could see the um, Mendenhall Lake. It wasn't frozen, but there, to the right of the bridge, was this pond. And it had just enough, it had ice on it that was thick enough that it was holding the snow. I went down and I checked it, and I know that when you're on skis, it spreads your weight out. And so it's perfect. What could go wrong with that? And so I slid out onto the ice, and it was perfect. Two inches of snow, great for skate skiing, for two seconds. And then I looked down, and there were cracks radiating away from my feet and skis, and bam! I was in ice-cold water right up to my armpits, floating free. I thought heavens. Well, actually, I'd, I didn't think heavens, but we are in a church. Anyway, the first thing that happens is you just start hyperventilating. You're just gasping. And this is going to last for two or three minutes. I know this because I've seen these on YouTube videos. So I had put my arms up onto the ice, get on, onto the ice, and I kick up, and the ice breaks. I do it again, and the ice breaks again. So plan B, and you're still gasping, and I reach down, get my arm completely wet on both sides as I take my skis off, and I slide, it, slide them over to the shore. Then I'm able to scissor kick and get onto the ice more, and I did, and the ice gave way. I was about 20 feet away when it began, but this, each time I was getting a little bit closer. So I just kept doing that, and it would break each time. Then suddenly I noticed that my boots were touching just barely the ground at the bottom of the pond. So I just started breaking the ice with my forearms. And so I just kept doing that till I got up to where I was actually breaking the ice like Godzilla, crushing a, a community town. I mean, I'm telling you, Ice water like that turns a man into a boy because you are just cold and you are just getting up there. I got up to the shore and I was greatly relieved. It's still 28 degrees. There's no wind, that's good. I gather up all my gear and I just start, I, I knew I had to get back to the car before my small muscle coordination went away and I wouldn't be able to unlock my car. So I scooped it up and I just started running. I had about three quarters of a mile. I had mud and snow on my boots so I couldn't reattach them to my skis. I just had to run. And so as I'm running down the trail, there goes the groomer. 
I wave to him. I'm soaking wet. I'm dripping. He waves back. Everyone's got a smile. I'm happy, I'll tell you that. And I'm going. And I run the three-quarters of a mile back to the entrance of the campground. And there's another acquaintance of mine that is just there. And he, even though he didn't pick up on the fact that I had just run towards him <laughs> with my ski gear dripping wet from here down, but I didn't really want to make Jeff Wilson feel bad, so I won't mention his name. He looked me, he looked me right in the eyes and he goes, Dave, what are the ski conditions like? So I told, you know, actually they're pretty good. The groomer just went by. I'm not gonna tell him I'm an idiot. I skied out on the pond there. And so I just got, I went back to the car and started it up and it was great. It was warm, I'd taken off some of my coats, drive into town, get into the house. It was great, warm, warming up even more. Have, you know, the pond was a little dirty. I did have to do my uh, laundry and I did think of all the time that my mom had done the laundry. And I kind of just, you know, walked that down. I always use the cheapest laundry detergent, but not my mom, she always used Tide. All right, number six on our list, Julia Black. She's got a posse too. Julia was born and raised in Seattle. After a few short months in commercial baking school, Julia was encouraged to apply for a job with the NOAA fleet out of Seattle. At 19 years old, she became the youngest baker in the fleet's history. And 35 years later, she still holds that title. She came to Juneau 19 years ago and has worked for the Juneau School District and owned and operated Mountain Lift Espresso at Eagle Crest. She has three grown children, one just currently married, and no pets. Please welcome Julia Black. NOAA, National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. Write that on your next job application. I worked for NOAA for eight years, and in eight years, I could tell you stories that would curl your toes. But I'm going to tell you a story that was the scariest hour I ever spent on the ocean. Let me set this up for you. When we bought Alaska from Russia, we had <laughs> so, we had an agreement with them about a waterway. We all owned three miles out, all the coastline, because that's as far as a cannonball could get. When the USSR incorporated everybody, we decided that three miles just wasn't quite far enough, so we put out a 200-mile zone out into the water. So, picture this. As you're going further north, we get closer and closer together. And you know that little piece up there where we're literally 51 miles apart, where Tina Fey made that really great comment, hey, I can see Russia from my house. Well, that part was in a major dispute. So the Americans took the Mercator map, the Russians took the conformal map, 
and we laid them over on top of each other, and there's a two-mile zone straight up the Bering Strait that is absolutely an international dispute. In 1991, we did solve that dispute when, it, when the USSR fell. We literally took those two miles and divided them in half. But until then, everything was in flux. My story takes place in 1987. I worked on a ship called the Miller Freeman for NOAA. We were the workhorse of the fleet. 211 feet, 45 people, a bunch of fishing equipment. We were a major trawler. Our job this year was to follow the Pollock. We were studying Pollock. We had been studying Pollock since January 1st in the Bering Sea. Not a good time. So here we are, we're following a Pollock out. Now it's beginning of March, and it is one of the best days we've had yet. The water is calm. Our ship is completely cocooned in this beautiful, light, light fog. And we know that above that fog, there is a sun because it's, we just know it's going to burn off. And we're very complacent. We're very happy. We're going to see the sunshine finally. The captain comes on, and he says, just so that you all are aware, off of our port bow is a Russian military frigate asking us to leave. And he goes off. We're like, huh, well, that's new. Never experienced that before. But you can't see it because it's in the fog. So we're kind of looking out the portholes and we're looking around. It's not there. So we go about our business. Probably about 20 minutes later, he says, Please, as a precautionary measure, gather your Gumby suit and go to your abandoned ship station. Now, we're not sinking, and we've all been trained really, really well to grab whatever we think we can use, whatever we think we can stick in our Gumby suits and go overboard with. So we're doing this, and we're doing it quickly, but you can't imagine the terror that's in our hearts. Why are we doing this? We're in American waters. We're Americans. We're impervious. That's not so. Back in 1987, you have to remember things happened. Still the Cold War, we were still dealing. We get out there, and you know the first thing you do for survival is you pour everything into the middle. And you say, OK, let's sort it out. So everything is poured into the middle. And then it's Joe's turn. And Joe puts down a deck of cards. He goes, well, we may be out there for a while. We might as well play cards. So let me tell you a little bit about how these, our, our, our survival boats are set up. They were set up for um, personality and abilities. So we were really separated. So Joe was our jokester. He was the one that was going to keep our spirits. But we're standing out there, and we're talking, well, what are we going to do? Because we have to get the lifeboats off. They're in the, those big barrels, and they have a, a static release that they have to go so far down, then the static release will let the life raft out and we'll you know, pop back up. And we have to jump into the water in our Gumby suits and get into the life raft if this, all this is going to happen. So we're talking about this. How do we do this? While well, that was happening, the fog rolled back. And the point of this Russian frigate came out. And if you don't know what a big Russian frigate is, it's about 380 feet. It has one gun on the very front that's meant to shoot down aircrafts. And that? That gun is pointed at us, directly at our ship. 
there are some sailors standing on board that have rifles, which are not pointed at us, and we're grateful. But it was out there just long enough for us to all realize how real the situation that we were in was. It was terrifying. You can't think, you can't talk. We were dead silent. And the ship pulls back into, into the fog. I don't know how long. We felt like we stood out there forever. In reality, it was about 40 minutes. But by the time we were just terrified enough, the captain came on and said, stand down, stand down. We are leaving. So we pulled out. We lost three months' worth of data. So the scientists were discouraged. We knew as a ship that we were going to have to spend another winter in the Bering Sea. So my time and tide was not human versus nature. My time and tide was the most scariest moment to this day of my life where it was human versus human on the ocean. Thank you. Our final speaker for the evening is Joy Lyon. Joy considers herself a casual kayaker. Even still, she's had close encounters with humpbacks and almost bumped into a pair of sleeping sea lions. Many of her kayaking misadventures are with her daughter, Ariel, whom she credits with once getting their double kayak stuck in a tree, <laughs> and also for convincing her once that it would be, quote, easier to carry the kayak through the cemetery and across Egan and back rather than strapping it to the top of the car <laughs> to go a mere three blocks uh, to Harris Harbor. So please welcome Joy. I always love a chance to get out on the water with my daughter. We started paddling together in our double kayak when she was a preschooler, and it got to be quite a bit more fun when she started paddling forward instead of backward. And we had so many adventures at Burners Bay. We portaged over to Seymour Canal, went to Pack Creek. We went around Douglas. And one of the times we went to Douglas, well, we were going to circumnavigate Douglas. And we got down to Marmion Island. We stopped. We were all geared up. We had a picnic. And I noticed she was wearing her sandals, and she only had one boot. I was like, no, being a responsible parent, we're, we're heading back. And so the next time it was my boots that were the problem. Um, we went to Camping Cove Cabin, and we thought, well, we'll paddle out to Blue Muscle and check it out, see who's there. And it, it wasn't very long at all. And the tide came in, and the wind, the surf came up. It was like Surf City. It was crashing waves on that little beach there. And it was just, we waited and waited, and there's just no way we're going to launch in that safely. I'm, again, being the responsible parent. And so we decided, well, we better just hike on back down the trail to the, to the cabin and come back for the kayak the next day, which wouldn't have been a problem, except for some reason I had borrowed my husband's size 12 steel-toed extra tufts and thought it would be easier to get on and off for the kayaking trip. So it was kind of a clown hike going back. Well, one day... Ariel and I realized that we had never actually, in our eagerness to get to the wild side of Douglas, we'd never actually done that section from town to Ock Bay. So we thought, we started thinking about it, and we're like, 
where exactly do these two incoming tides meet? Because both the tides coming in are going to meet in the exact center of Gasnaw Channel. And it's like, well, we've got to find out. So off we went. We started from Ock Bay in a sunny summer day. Not, of course, it was overcast and cold. But we headed on and um, went around Spoon Island, and we were um, kind of playing around at the mouth of the mighty Mendenhall River, and we were talking about how John Muir, when he was here in the late 1800s, that he almost rode his rowboat right up to the face of the glacier before it had receded, before the glacial rebound had, had happened. And so we were talking about that, and then everything was going as planned, and we were going to just shoot on through uh, with, the, with the incoming tide, and then we would get on back up to town. But suddenly, we lost the channel. It was just lost. We, it, was, it was not there. It was, we looked everywhere. It was, there was no channel. But we did see this buoy. It was like up on the 10-foot-high um, mud bank. We're like, well, let's just beach the kayak and climb up there and see if we could see it from up there. And we looked around. There's just no channel. And we're like, well, there's this little stream, and it's probably going to connect up again. It's just, you know, we know it winds around out there. So, so off we went down the stream and up the stream, and, and pretty quick, the, the uh, icy water is plunging down over the tops of our extra tufts. And, and it would just get, you know, we think, oh, it's deep enough now. We get back in the kayak. And then, of course, it would just, two paddle strokes later, it'd be beached again, and we'd have to climb out and in. And pretty soon we got tired of, like, emptying out our boots. So we'd just lay on the back of the kayak and lift our legs up in the air and let a couple gallons of water drain out. And uh, so we were pushing it, and sometimes one of us would ride on top, and sometimes, anyway, we were laughing so hard we could barely, barely walk. But we didn't want to turn back because then we would have to admit to our kayak transport system with our family driver that we had lost the channel. And that's sort of embarrassing. I mean, how do you lose the channel? So, and then we thought briefly of like, well, we could just, here now we're at the back of the um, airstrip. So how about we just pull out and trot along the edge of the airstrip and get back to town? And we thought, well, with our bright orange kayak and our bright red life jackets, that might attract the wrong kind of attention. So onward we went, and we just somehow, you know, kept carrying and pushing and pulling the kayak along, and we managed to get out at that pullout, you know, on Egan. And uh, so next time you're driving down at a low to mid-tide, look out there and think to yourself, wow, what a beautiful place to take a kayak for a walk. <laughs> yeah. So undeterred, though, the very t next chance we had, a couple weeks later, we found a good tide and we, um, uh, that worked into both our schedules. We started from town this time, so, and we hugged the back, the edge of Douglas, because we thought, we're not losing that channel again. So up we go, and we're um, paddling up the channel, and we knew then we were going to expect to run out of water, and sure enough, we did. We just ran totally out of water. And, uh, but this time, we're not carrying that kayak again. We're just going to wait. So, and this time it really was sunny. So we just sat in the sun, we told stories and sang songs, and um, you know, eventually, it was, seemed a long time. It seemed like it was a, we were predicting it was about 11 or 12 foot tide that finally lifted the boat enough to float. And then we went uh, 
forward, and, and there it was. I mean, it is a mystical, magical place that happens once a day, maybe every day, that these two tides come together in the exact center of the Gaston Channel. And it's just this bubbly cauldron of happiness. It's, these tides are reuniting, and they're just like so happy to be reunited again. And it is, it is a sight to see. And we were in the middle. It was this whirlpool. It was just all going around. It was just a happy place. And uh, we just celebrated in there until it was kind of like tide everywhere. And uh, went on a, about paddling against the tide to get Dog Bay. And uh, when we were paddling, we were thinking like, what exactly is the definition of an island versus a peninsula? And we're thinking, hmm, it's not, if a mean high tide is 13 feet and we're about 12 feet, we think what we were floating, I don't want to be the one to tell these Douglas people that it's not really an island, you know. You know the Douglas people. Yeah. So, but I think that someone should keep an eye on that and let these map makers know what is the exact year. Maybe we could start one of those betting pools, you know. What is the exact year that Douglas no longer can claim to be an island. And so I checked just tonight, and there was a low tide at 8.41 p.m., which is right about now. And so at 3 a.m., that will be a 15-foot tide. So right around midnight, we need some volunteers. Get your headlamps. Head on out there. But I have, I have some tips for you. One, you can just leave the kayak at home and hike it. Start from the Douglas side. And um, make sure you wear your extra tall, extra tufts, and make sure they're the right size, and make sure you have both boots. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> This is KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Mudrooms on December 11, 2019 at Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Time and Tide. This program is a production of the Mudroom Storyboard. Alita Buss, Tom Cosgrove, Sarah Hannon, Melissa Griffiths, Jeff Smith, and David Noon. I'm Rich Moniak. Have a good night.